knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. sinful and fallen world and because of that as Christians we oftentimes have horrible things happen to us and you know being a Christian doesn't mean that we will escape sinful people it doesn't mean that we will escape the horrible things that sinful people do to us and really throughout the Bible you have followers of God going through horrible things because sinful people do horrible things to them and the greatest example of that is Jesus himself uh, the son of God the one who was perfect had some of the most vile and horrible things done to him. And so, you know, just a few days ago, many Christians in Nigeria were slaughtered by some Muslim men. And, you know, I mean, just because we follow Christ doesn't mean we escape sin, doesn't mean we escape the consequences of the sinful world around us. Uh, And so, you know, in reality, if we live long enough, probably each one of us will face some horrible situation because of somebody who's sinful doing something against us. And we'll have to be faced with the question of how do we respond? You know, when someone does something to us or to someone that we love, you know, how do we respond to that person? How do we respond to that situation? And that's something that can be very difficult for us. And, you know, oftentimes we don't respond the way that we should. We don't respond the way the Word of God tells us to. Uh, We oftentimes respond in sin when sinned against us. Uh, and I bring all this up because in Genesis chapter 34, which we're going to look at tonight, Jacob's daughter Dinah is going to have something horrible done to her. And the rest of the chapter is really dealing with the response that Jacob and his sons have to this horrible situation. And sadly, both Jacob and his sons are going to do something that's very unbiblical and sinful. And they both kind of have extreme responses, but extreme in different ways. Jacob basically does nothing. And his sons go to an insane extreme for their vengeance that they seek to get on this city. And so really in this chapter, we're going to learn about how we should and shouldn't respond when sinned against, uh, especially when sinned against in a, in a greater way. Because, you know, someone does something little, you know, that's not as big of a deal to us. But when we have something horrific happen, you know, we're, we're faced with how do we respond to that? How do we deal with that Uh, We're going to see examples of what not to do uh, here in Jacob's life and his son's lives. Uh, And I'm going to bring up some passages of Scripture that share with us how we should respond in these types of horrible situations where people come and sin against us. So Genesis chapter 34, starting in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see what happens here. And it says this. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Now, at the end of the last chapter, we see that 
Jacob buys a plot of land uh, from the children of Hamar, Shechem's father, uh, and he builds himself a a home in the city of Shechem. Uh, And so Hamar, he is the king of this area, and Shechem is the prince uh, of this area. And so that is where Jacob and his family are living. And Jacob only has one daughter. He's got many sons, 11 at this point, and he has one daughter. And his daughter, most commentators believe that she would have been early mid-teens at this point in time. We don't know exactly because we don't know the time frame with some of the things since she's been born. But she's out and about in this city, you know, hanging out with the girls in this city. And probably since she's the only girl in her home, surrounded by a bunch of boys, you know, typical teenage girl wanting to go make some girlfriends, have some fun out in the city. Uh, and so as she's going around, walking around in the city, we see Shechem. He's the, the prince of this city, and, and he sees Dinah. He goes to her, he takes her somewhere, and he rapes her. Uh, when he says he violates her, that's what it's speaking of. And so Shechem does this horrible thing to Dinah, And I want you to notice first, before we see the response of Jacob and the sons, is what we're going to be focused on tonight, is what it says about him right after he does this, which kind of shows how twisted he is. But verses 3 and 4 says this, His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. Now, notice what we're told here. First, that Shechem was strongly attracted to Dinah, that he thought she was beautiful, and both of those would make sense with what he did. But then we're also told that he loved her and spoke kindly to her. And you have to ask yourself, well, wait a second, how could this guy be said he loved her after he raped her? Uh, So obviously, what's going on here? And this is something that is important when we look at the fact that In the English language, we don't have the original language. So here in Genesis, we have the Hebrew that's been translated to English. But in English, we only have one word for love. And it's really not the best choice here because the Hebrew word translated love here means a sexual attraction. Probably a better translation into English to really get the heart of this would be lust. You know, Shechem did not love, as we think of biblically, like 1 Corinthians 13, You know, that was not his feelings towards Dinah. He had a lust for her. He was attracted to her. He felt that she was beautiful. And in his lust, he responds in this horrible way because you don't rape someone that you love. And so after doing this horrible thing, he has the audacity to then go and speak kindly to her. And he comes to his dad and says, hey, I want to have her as a wife. Now, we don't think that he knows anything about her. He just sees her for the very first time. He's lusting after her. He forces himself upon her. And now he's like, hey, I want to marry this girl. And so Shechem does this horrible thing. And then adding insult to injury, he does speaks kindly, wants to marry her. And so now we're going to come to Jacob, the father. We're going to come to Jacob's sons, the brothers, and see you know, how are they going to respond in the midst of this very horrible situation. As we started, you know, when we face sin, when sin has been against us, we're now challenged of how am I going to respond to these people who have done something horrible to me? And as we noted, both these responses are not going to be biblical ones. So verses 5 through 12, we're going to start with how Jacob responds to the rape of his daughter, says this. 
And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with their livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. So when Jacob hears what transpired, he hears of what Shechem has done to his daughter Dinah, we're told that he holds his peace until his sons arrive. And this would not be an easy thing for a father to do, to hold your peace after hearing that kind of news. But Jacob waits for his sons to arrive, probably because he's most likely afraid. Remember who did this. This is the prince of the city, Shechem, is you know the one who's done this to his daughter. And so if Jacob actually speaks maybe what he's thinking and feeling, he's worried about, hey, I'm here all alone. I don't have my sons here backing me up. And so there probably was some fear, and he's waiting for his sons to come before um, he actually says anything. And so his sons arrive. And so it's him and his sons. When his sons hear what happened, we're actually told how they felt. We actually aren't even told how Jacob felt, just that he held his peace. But we're told that the brothers of Dinah are very grieved and very angry uh, at what transpires. And so Now Jacob and his sons have an opportunity to respond. How are they going to respond to Shechem? How are they going to respond to the situation that has transpired? And Jacob, as the head of the home, should be the one that speaks, should be the one that acts, and hopefully in a biblical way. But before Jacob says anything, Hamar, the king, Shechem's dad, jumps in there and says, hey, I want to kind of put a proposal out here to you guys. He says, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. And so Hamar is asking Jacob, asking Dinah's brothers to allow Shechem, the man who just raped her, to marry her. Now notice Hamar doesn't address the rape at all. He doesn't apologize for his son. He doesn't acknowledge what has transpired. All he does is say, hey, why don't you guys allow Shechem to marry Dinah. And in order to persuade Jacob and his sons to do this, he gives two incentives. Notice the first incentive. Make marriages with us, give us your daughters, and take our daughters to yourself, so you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and inquire possessions for yourself in it. So notice that Hamar's not just offering for Shechem and Dinah to get married. He's saying, you know what, let's take it a step further. How about all of our women can be married by all of your men and all of your women can be married by all of our men? Let's just start intermarrying with one another and let's not stop there. Let's trade with one another. Let's dwell with one another. I mean, doesn't this sound so great? We can all 
prosper together. We can intermarry with one another and just kind of be one people group after that. And so that's the first incentive that Hamar's trying to give to get Jacob and the sons to allow Shechem to marry Dinah. Um, the second incentive, notice what he says here. He says, let me, actually this is from Shechem. So Hamar shares the first bit. Shechem shares the second bit. Shechem says, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. So Shechem now speaks up. Hamar the dad says, hey, let's just all intermarry together, dwell together. We can be prosperous together. And then Shechem basically says, hey, I know in our culture, for me to marry someone, I need to offer a dowry. And so the one who was going to be marrying the man would give a dowry to the father of the bride. Um, and, you know, he's saying, hey, whatever you want, name your price. I'll give you whatever you want for Dinah, however much money you want for her. I'm going to give it. And so that is his incentive. Hey, let me have her and I'll just pay you lots of money for her. So the situation started horribly. You find out your daughter or your sister is raped, but now Hamar and Shechem actually have made the situation worse. They haven't made it better. The rapist and the father, they haven't acknowledged what had happened. They didn't say anything about the rape. They don't apologize at all. They have the audacity to then ask that Jacob and his sons would allow Dinah, their daughter, their sister, to marry the man that had just raped her. And if that wasn't enough, they say, you know what? We'll pay for it. We'll just give you plenty of money. That just name your price attitude acted like, you know what? Money to take away the disgrace that has just happened to our daughter, to our sister, that we can kind of just buy her off, we can smooth this over, that nothing's going to be spoken of. Um, so right after this proposal, Jacob, the head of the home, he should be the one that's speaking. He should be the one that's saying how he feels. He should be the one that's acting. It should have been very clear right away, there's no way I'm ever allowing you, rapist, to marry my daughter. That should have been the very first thing and there's no way that our daughters will ever marry the daughter uh, or the men in your ungodly Canaanite culture. And to think that you can make up for your sin by offering money to me, it's just an insult. I mean, he should have been the one that then said, and I demand justice for my daughter. Shechem needs to be held account to what he has done. He needs to be punished for what he has done. Jacob, like all husbands and fathers, is called to be the spiritual leader of the home. He's called to be the one to make decisions. He's called to be the one to stand up for his family. But the sad reality here is through this whole thing that we'll see in this chapter, he says nothing. He does nothing. He's just quiet. In the midst of such a horrible thing that happens to his daughter, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything, which leads us to the first point I want us to note about how we should and shouldn't respond when someone sins against us. Point number one, when someone sins and does something horrible against us or someone that we love, doing nothing is not a biblical response. I think oftentimes this is what we do. 
And one of the biggest driving force to us of doing nothing when someone sins against us is fear. And really, as we see this unfold in this chapter, we're going to see this is the driving force for Jacob. It's something that we've seen through his life. Fear has been something that has caused him to make a lot of foolish decisions. And once again, he's fearful. And you can understand why there'd be fear. I mean, you got the king and the prince, you know, wanting this to happen. The prince is the guilty culprit here. And so trying to get justice might be difficult. And, you know, speaking your mind might cause problems for you. You know, he might have thought his life and his family's life was in jeopardy if he were to speak up. But yet he allows that fear to keep him in a place where he just says nothing and he does nothing. You know what? When we do nothing against those who sin against us, it just brings more problems to us personally, but it brings more problems to society as a whole. When we just leave sinful people unchecked, and especially when they do something horrific like this, and there's no consequences to it, we just send this message of, hey, you can act however you want, and we're not going to do anything about it. As Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that men, good men, do nothing. And that's a sad reality, which we see so often, where doing nothing is not the biblical response, it's not the helpful response, it's not how God wants us to respond to those who sin against us. And even in simple things, the Lord says still, go to them, share with them, tell them what they've done. I mean, there's always a response that God wants on our part, and when the sin is greater, then there's greater consequences for the person who's done it. But never ask us to sit back and do absolutely nothing as we see here with Jacob. You know, when you look at the law that God established for the nation of Israel and you see how severe he was in certain things, but there was always a consequence. There was always, all right, if a person does this, then you as a nation need to respond. It's not just, oh, just let it go. No big deal. Don't say anything about it. It was always, no. There has to be consequences. And for bigger sins like rape, the consequence was death. Uh, and so God established that, saying, no, these things have to be dealt, dealt with, and there should be severity when the sin is so severe. Now, when any of us do nothing when someone sins against us, that's definitely not beneficial. It's not good. But it's even worse when you're in the role of someone who should do something. When you are the head of the home, when you are the husband, when you are the father, when you're meant to be protecting your family. That was the role that Jacob was supposed to be in. That was the role that he should have taken on. But when you're in that role and you do nothing, it brings this void. And so often you see, as we'll see here, you see through scripture, you see through history, when there is that void, someone's going to fill it usually. So Jacob has the opportunity to be the leader to do what is right, to respond biblically, but he does nothing. And now there's a void and the sons are thinking, if you're not going to do anything, dad, we'll do something. And ultimately what we're about to see with Jacob's sons, they're guilty of doing something very sinful. But you know what? If Jacob would have stepped forward, he would have spoken and he would have acted and he would have done what was right. He could have prevented this catastrophe that's about to happen from his sons, but because he does nothing, there's this void that's jumped into from those who are ready to go, especially when they're angry and they want vengeance and they want revenge. You know, they're ready to jump in there and do something sinful. And that's the other thing that we need to realize today, that when God appointed leaders and heads don't respond, when they do nothing, 
There is that void that's created that's oftentimes filled by people willing to do sinful things. And so Jacob stays silent after hearing the request of Hamar, saying, hey, please let Dinah marry my son Shechem. And now we're going to see Jacob's son step in, and they're going to have a response. And notice what they say, but more importantly, what they do. Verses 13 through 19. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamar his father and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamar and Shechem, Hamar's son. So the young man did not delay to do this thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the house of his father. So notice here, Jacob's silence and his sons now speak. And the first thing I want you to notice in their response to Hamar and their response to Shechem is that we're told their answer was deceitful. So right away, there's sin in their response. There's deceit in what they're saying. And we're going to see how horrible this deceit ultimately is going to be and what it's going to lead to. But right away, we see their response to sin is to sin. And that's never healthy. That's never good. When someone sins against us, we don't respond biblically if we are sinning back against them. And so that's something that we are all kind of susceptible to. And we see right away here this deception that comes, but they have a bigger plan. Uh, And they're telling them all this stuff, which sounds really good, but their plan is pretty twisted and sick. And you're going to see what happens. But let's note what their deception is. They say, you know what? We can't allow Dinah to marry Shechem because he's not circumcised. And that would be something that would be a reproach to us. And there's truth in that statement. They're trying to use this religious tradition, this this sign that God has given them as this excuse for why this can't happen. But that's not really why they're doing this. They're just saying this. And so they're claiming, hey, you're not circumcised, Shechem. There's no way we could give Dinah to marry you. But we have a solution. If you and every one of the men in the city are willing to get circumcised, then not only can Shechem marry Dinah, but even more, our daughters can marry your men and your daughters can marry our men and we'll be one people and we'll dwell together. All those things that you wanted, we will do. But if you don't get circumcised, we are going to take Dinah and we're going to leave. So not only Shechem will you not get Dinah, but we won't dwell here anymore. None of our daughters will marry yours. We won't dwell here. We won't trade with you. You won't benefit from us at all. We will just get our sister or daughter and we will leave this area. So it's up to you. Circumcised and you can have all this. Don't get circumcised. You lose it all. And so they kind of throw this proposal back at Hamar and Shechem. And we're told that this pleases them. They love it. Shechem's so happy about this that we're told he doesn't delay in getting circumcised. Right away, he's like, all right, I'm doing this because I want to marry this girl. 
But notice what else we're told about Shechem in verse 19, which is a real sad commentary on this family. We're told he was more honorable than all the household of his father. The rapist is the most honorable person there, which says something about the rest of the people living there, the rest of the men that are there. I mean, that's a sad reality of Hamar's home that his rapist son is the most honorable person there. So there's basically no honor among them. uh, And it's a sad, sad situation. So now Hamar and Shechem have some convincing to do. Because remember, it's not just Shechem who has to be circumcised. It's every single man in the city for this plan to be something that works out. And so they got to go back and they got to share with the rest of the men of the city some pretty convincing reasons why all these guys should go ahead and circumcise themselves. So let's see what happens. Verse 20. (coughs) And Hamar and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gates of his city, heeded Hamar and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gates of the city. So Hamar and Shechem, they come, they gather at the gate of the city, which is the place where the men would meet, and they meet with all these men. And before they get to the part of what the men have to do, they build this up. Because most guys aren't going to circumcise themselves unless they have some really good reason for doing so. And so he's given them the incentive. He starts off, with, hey, you know, Jacob and his family, remember, who are very wealthy, by the way, they're at peace with us. Let us dwell with them. Let us trade with them. Let us marry their girls, and they can marry ours, and all their property will be ours. Their livestock, which is abundant, will be ours. I mean, we will be so much more wealthy if we make this agreement with them, and it's going to be great. And he's painting this picture of how much more wealthy and benefited we will be men but there's one thing we got to do we got to be like them and they're circumcised and they won't let this happen unless we're circumcised and so we got to do this but it's worth it all right guys you want to do it and they all agree yeah there's enough positives here to outweigh the negative of being circumcised and so we're going to do this and so all the men in the city get circumcised well now we're going to see the part of the deception remember it started off with They shared these words, and it was a whole deceptive ploy. And let's see why they do it. Verse 25 through 29 says this. Now it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamar and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. Doesn't end there. Then the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. 
So the reason that Jacob's sons give for why he wants them to be served out that whole religious thing and like, oh, you know, we can't do that. That will be a reproach to us. You guys got to do that if you want to have Dinah as a wife. But they never planned on giving Dinah to Shechem. All of this was a ploy knowing one thing. When those men get circumcised, they're going to be in a lot of pain. And when they're in a lot of pain, they're not going to be able to fight. And when they can't fight, we're going to come and slaughter them. That was their mindset. That was the deception. Oh, well, we'll tell them this so that they'll go and they'll get circumcised and then we'll be able to come in and wipe them all out. And we'll be able to get our vengeance against them. And so they wait three days. And we're told the men are in a lot of pain after these three days. And only two of the sons come with their swords to wipe out these men. And notice the two who do it. Simeon and Levi. Now, remember Jacob's family, there's a lot of women. There's four women producing children. Leah is the mother of Dinah, but she's also the mother of Simeon and the mother of Levi. So Dinah has many half-brothers, but she also has a few full brothers. And Simeon and Levi are her full brothers, and probably the two that would have been the most angry uh, about this situation because it's their full-blooded sister that they're probably closer to that had this happen, uh, and they respond by this plan and ultimately fulfill. Now, it'd be one thing if they went in and they killed Shechem. You could understand that. Okay, here's the guilty party. We're going to take care of him. But they don't just kill Shechem. They kill Hamar, and they kill every single male in the entire city. And it doesn't just stop there, because now the other brothers decide to get in on the action. So now you've got the other nine who come in, and they plunder everything. They steal it all. It doesn't belong to them, but they take it. They take everything that's in the field, so all the sheep and all the cattle. They take all the money. They take everything in the homes. And it doesn't stop there. Then they enslave all the women and children and take them with them. And so you have a girl who gets raped, which is a horrible tragedy, and their response is to murder every single man in the, in the city to take everything for themselves and steal it, and to enslave every woman and child, and they feel like that is justified in their response. And obviously, that's quite an extreme response to what has happened. Uh, and, you know, this is the opposite of their dad. You see, Jacob has the extreme of doing nothing, and they have the extreme of going overboard in their desire for revenge, and they just wipe out and take care of it in such a horrible fashion. Which leads us to the second point I want us to note about how we should and shouldn't respond when someone sins. Number two, when someone sins and does something horrible against us or someone that we love, responding by sinning against them is not a biblical response. You know, this is such an obvious statement, but we are so guilty of it. It's never okay to sin in response to being sinned against. You can never justify, well, they sinned against me, so it's okay that I sin against them. And so often, that is our justification, and we want to say, well, it's okay that I've treated them this way, or I said this thing, or I responded this way, because look at what they did to me. And what we're saying is their sin to me justifies my sin against them, but biblically, there's never justification for us sinning against someone. It doesn't matter what they've done to us. We don't get to be justified and then responding with sin of our own. And, you know, 
Oftentimes, like we see here with these brothers, it's usually not even just a measured response. Someone punches me, I punch them. Someone says something bad, I say something bad back. Oftentimes, if someone says something about me, I'll say something about them and their family and, you know, everyone else. Someone hits me and I'm going to, you know, there's like this extreme oftentimes that we have as we are enraged and we're angry and we want revenge and we just want to one-up them. Oh, you're going to do that to me? Well, you wait to see what I'm going to do to you. You wait to see how I'm going to respond to you. And obviously, what we see here from the sons of Jacob is about the most extreme response that you could have. The only more extreme would be if they just killed everybody. Um, but, you know, even that, you know, being enslaved for the rest of your life would have been a horrible experience as well for the women and the children. But you know what? Our flesh likes it. And I'll have to say, if I'm honest, there's part of my flesh as I read this story and I think, you know what? Way to go. You know, obviously there's the extreme of killing so many, but it's like, you know what? Shechem deserves death. You know, someone were to rape my daughter, someone were to rape my sister. That's how I would feel. I'd want to see them dead. And I feel like, you know what? Circumcision, that's a great way to do it for a rapist. You know, that's just a, you know, kind of icing on the cake that he has to suffer through that before you kill him. But, you know, there's part of me that's like, you know what? This is something in my flesh that I'd love to see happen. But the Bible makes it very clear. We're not to be led by and follow our flesh. And this is our problem because our flesh wants retaliation. It wants revenge. It wants things that we shouldn't follow. And that's the struggle because when someone does something to us, we're not filled with all these wonderful thoughts towards them of how we can love them and be good to them and pray for them. We're filled with thoughts of how we can get back at them and hurt them and do harm to them. And that's what we see here with Jacob's sons. And so I want to share a couple verses in contrast to what they did, what Scripture tells us we should do. The first one is James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. It says this, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is a great passage for so many areas of life. To be quick to listen, we're so often quick to speak when we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, but one of the biggest ones is slow to wrath, slow to anger. You know, if we do this in our relationships, our relationships will benefit so much more, much more willing to listen and slow to get angry. There's going to be a lot of benefits that come from that. But our struggle is, it's for us. We're quick to get wrathful and angry. We don't really think about it. We don't talk it through and we just respond. Someone's done this to us and we're going to get even. And, you know, when that happens, there's a lot of sin that usually comes out of our life. In 1996, the movie A Time to Kill came out into theaters. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's based on the John Grisham book. It's a, a legal thriller that takes place in the segregated South. Uh, and you have these two basically Ku Klux Klan white guys who rape a black girl, young girl, and the father shoots him, kills him. Uh, and the whole movie then, that's right at the beginning, is this courtroom, you know, thriller of is he going to be acquitted? Is he going to be found guilty? You know, and you're kind of going back and forth of, you know, was it right for him to retaliate, take the law into his own hands and kill these horrible guys? Uh, and so I go to this movie, I see it with my parents, and after the movie, my dad says, you know, that's exactly what I've done if someone did that to Julie. You know, and I totally get that mindset, 
Um, and but I, I just throw out to him, you know, kind of just trying to be a little punk anyway. You know, do you think that that's how God would want you to respond? You know, you're a pastor. You can't just, you know, make that statement. Take the law in your own hand. Go murder someone. You think that's how God would want you to respond? And I thought, you know, he would kind of back away from that. Well, you're right. No, he just tried to dug in his heels and like, well, you don't understand. If you were a father, you'd know that. So you're saying it's okay to take the law in your own hand and murder someone as long as they've done something horrible to someone you love. So that, that's what you're telling me then. So, but he was basically trying to make that case, which you really can't biblically. But, you know, then he just said, well, when you become a father one day, you'll understand. And, you know, I am a father. I understand the desire to kill someone who rapes your child, but still doesn't give me the biblical, you know, okay, now just because I desire it, I get to do it. No, that is not what the scripture says. We don't get to take the law into our own hands. We don't get to murder people, uh, even though there might be something within us that desires to do it. Romans 12, 19 through 21 tells us this. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will reap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When someone sins against us, the Bible is very clear. Our role is not to get vengeance for them. We are not to get revenge and, hey, they did this, and I'm going to make sure that that person who did this suffers the proper way by my hand. What we should not do is be overcome by evil. And I think so often people do evil things and we think, well, I'm going to overcome it by evil. No, the Bible says the only way we overcome evil is through good. If I respond to your evil with my own evil, it just makes things more evil, more sinful, more problematic. That does not change or help the situation. It makes me just as guilty as you are. The only way to overcome evil is through good. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is one of those passages of Scripture that we would like to avoid, that we wish Jesus didn't say, that we don't want to try to put into practice, because it's so difficult. And it goes so against the way in which we feel towards our enemies. And people are usually our enemies because they do horrible things against us. They demonstrate they're our enemy by the way they speak against us, by the actions they do against us. And we don't have fond feelings of those people. We don't want to do here what Jesus says, but he says, you know what, you need to love them. Love those people who have done the horrible things to you. Love those people who have said the wicked things about you. Love those people who treat you in a bad way. And then he goes on to say, and do good for them. And pray for them. When someone sins against us, this is pretty much the opposite response that we have. We don't want to love them. We don't want to do good to them. We don't want to pray about them or for them unless it's like God strike them down right now. I mean, that's the only prayer that usually comes to mind. And Jesus is saying, you've got to go against everything that your flesh desires and trust in me, trust in the Spirit of God, love these people, do good to them, pray for them, overcome evil with good, not with more evil. 
And I think a great thing for us to always remember when someone sins against us is how God responded to you, how he responded to me, our sin against him. Aren't you glad that he didn't say, well, boom, I'm going to destroy you right now. I'm going to judge you right now. I'm going to respond to you in like measure of how you responded to me. He loved us when we were wicked sinners. He did good to us when we were his enemy. And he's the example. And that's the great thing about Jesus as he speaks these things. And now I say this to you and now watch how I live. Watch how I treat my enemies. I mean, even on the cross, after everything that was done to him, for him to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That willingness to love, to forgive, to do good to those who don't deserve it. Which leads us to the third point I want us to note. When someone sins and does something horrible against us or against someone that we love, respond by loving them, praying for them, and doing good, not evil towards them. This definitely is hard. It definitely goes against our sinful nature, our fleshly desires. But this is the only thing that we can truly say is right. You know, to try to justify, well, no, I, I get to respond this way. I get to say this thing. I get to retaliate. I get to get my revenge. Look what they did. No, there's no biblical premise for that. It's love. It's good. It's prayer that we see. Well, now this chapter is going to end with something very interesting. It's going to be the response of Jacob to the response of his sons. Because Jacob does nothing, and his sons go ballistic. And now he is going to respond to what they have done, and it's going to shine a light on both of them, because then they're going to respond to their dad, and we're going to see some interesting things. Verse 30 and 31. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? So Jacob rebukes the the two worst. He can rebuke all of them, but he picks Simon and Levi, and you would understand that because they're the two that murdered everybody. And Notice what he rebukes them for, though, because, you know, as a father, you could definitely say, what are you guys thinking? Going and killing all these people. I mean, that's murder. That's completely wrong. But notice he doesn't even mention that. Notice what he does mention, though. You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my house and I. Notice the focus of this whole thing. It's nothing about them and what they did. It's all about how that impacts Jacob. That's all he's concerned about. Not that, hey, sons, what are you thinking? You guys are a bunch of murderers, and now you've enslaved innocent women and children, and you're thieves. He doesn't deal with any of those things. He just says, look what you've done to me. Look at now how I'm going to be viewed. I'm going to be obnoxious among the people of this land. They're going to think of Jacob, and they're going to be like, oh, that guy with his killer sons. And they're probably going to rise up, and they're going to kill me, and they're going to kill our family. But all of it's just about him and what it does to him. That's his focus, and it's sad. He's not concerned about them. He's concerned about himself. And, you know, I think this shows us why he does nothing to begin with. I mean, he's responding here with, it's all about me. And look at how it made me look. And 
Look at how it put me in danger. And then you think, well, why didn't you say anything, Jacob? Why didn't you do anything to begin with? This is why. He was scared. I don't want to look bad among these people. I don't want them to want to kill me. And so I'll just allow this to go. I'll just allow this horrible atrocity to my daughter as long as nothing happens to me. As long as I'm not viewed negatively and as long as I'm not put in jeopardy, then I'll just be quiet. I won't say anything. I won't do anything. So Jacob is upset, but he's upset about the wrong stuff and he's focused on the wrong person. But he's not the only one with the wrong perspective on this sin. Notice how Simeon and Levi respond. They say, should he treat our sister like a harlot? So after all this, this is their justification. Look at what Shechem did. He raped our sister. I mean, you don't do that without consequences. And the reality is, yeah, that's true. But the crime needs to, the, the punishment needs to match the crime. I mean, they're thinking, well, we're justified in slaughtering every single man in this city. We're justified by taking everything that these people had and we're justified in enslaving all the women and the children. They felt their extreme response was justified. And this shows why they did what they did. If you can justify your response, you can get real extreme. You know, and that's where they got. I mean, if you can just say, hey, they deserve it. I mean, if the prince does this, imagine how bad the other men are. We need to kill them all. We need to get wipe them off the face of this earth. We need to protect everybody by just killing all these men. And hey, now all their stuff's here, so we should get it. You know, we deserve it after what they did to our sister and all these other women and children. We're going to enslave them. You know, and it's okay. We're justified in this because look at what they did to our sister. When we're fearful, we often respond by doing nothing to those who sin against us because we don't want to make our lives any worse. And when we're angry, we often respond by sinning even worse than those who sinned against us and go into extremes and justifying our actions. But both of those responses are completely unbiblical. They're extremes on both sides, but they're extreme sinful responses. And sadly, you know, we are guilty of responding from one extreme to the other and in the middle as well. But the only way that we should be responding is when someone sins against us to respond with love, to respond to respond by doing good, not evil. And that would include, you know, dealing with this, calling the police, you know, allowing them to suffer the consequences of their sin in the justice system, not with my gun, um, you know, not me murdering them, but me, you know, being there to testify, that's great. Being there to call the police and do that, those are all fine. Those are all within the biblical guidelines of how God has established the government to take care of evildoers, not us to do it in our own vengeance, in our own retribution. That was something that God outlawed, uh, and we have to be careful not to try to instill that. But, you know, this is hard. And I think, you know, I look at this, and especially we're seeing an extreme example you know, someone lies about you, you talk about loving them, and oh yeah, we can do that. You know, but this is something very different. You know, this happens, you know, there's not the same kind of like, oh yeah, I could just love them, I could just pray for them, I could do good to them, you know, and that's where I think this is a good, you know, example because it really hits us with that shock value of if something this extreme happened, could I respond the biblical way? Would I actually do that? And it's a struggle for us because it goes completely against 
what our flesh desires. And this is, you know, we talk so often about the battle between the flesh and the spirits and relying upon the Holy Spirit and trusting in Him and trusting the Word of God. This is one of those times where it's so important, where it's like, I can't trust in myself right now because everything in me wants to just tear this person apart for what they've done. And I don't have any love for this person. I don't want to pray for this person. I don't want to do any good to this person. I just want this person dead. And that's where I just have to be desperately connected to the Spirit of God who will help will help me, will help you in times like this to respond in a biblical way. But if we abandon time with the Lord, if we're not relying completely on Him in something of this extreme, there's no way we're going to respond the way we should. You know, in depending on our own self and our own strength, then we'll end up either being like Jacob, fearful doing nothing, or even worse, his sons and just wiping out a bunch of people who are innocent because we want to get back at those who are guilty. But, um, you know, it's one of those chapters that's very sad in what has transpired, not only with the hor- horrible sin to begin with, but then it's just magnified. You know, now you have a girl who's been raped, which is horrible in itself, and we end the chapter with every single man in the city dead, all the women and children enslaved, and all the stuff being stolen. You know, and it's like, Wow, that sure escalated quickly. Um, and it's a sad thing. Oftentimes, even you know, as I was reading through commentaries, a lot of commentaries don't even deal with this chapter. It's like they want it to be stricken from Scripture. We don't want to deal with such horrible things. But you know, one thing I like about this is notice who these people are. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the ones that we kind of lift up. Well, I mean, Levi, I mean, he's going to be the priestly tribe. It's not going to be anything because of actual Levi, but his descendants. You know, I mean, we look at them and we think, wow, so great. Here's a mass murderer and his brother Simeon as well. You know, and all the other ones are willing to enslave innocent women and children. They're willing to steal and plunder. And one thing I like about this is you can be confident the Bible's inspired by God because no way, if it was written by men, would they write such things about the heroes that they want elevate us and say, here are the 12 tribes. Here's where it all started. We're not going to want to talk about their murder and all these other things. It just shows the authenticity of the fact that these are real people and God is dealing with real historical events. And these are really messed up people. And it's good to see how God can change and use. But, you know, it's a warning to us of, hey, we're real people as well. And we could respond like this. You know, to think that, oh, I would never do that and I would never kill someone who killed or raped or whatever. You know, we need to realize that within each one of us, there could be some very extreme responses if something horrible enough happened to us. And that's why our time with the Lord, our growth in the Lord, our dependence on the Lord is such an important thing for us so that we will respond in the midst of those times in a biblical way as opposed to the way we see here in this chapter. So, any thoughts on. This chapter and any questions?